If you have your Bible, you're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like. We're going to begin by reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And it says this, the English Standard Version. It says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, the Christ, Yeshua. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 is a great text. It teaches us that there is but one God, it says in this version of the Bible. One mighty one, one Elohim in Hebrew, one Theos in Greek. It also says there is one mediator between this one mighty one and us men. The last part of the verse tells us the mediator is Yeshua the Christ or Yeshua the Messiah. And it calls him a man as well. So we have one mighty one, that's Yahweh. We have one mediator, that's Yeshua. And then we have us, that's sinners. It's a great verse. I've used it many times in showing people the separation that exists between Yeshua and the one mighty one. But I've titled this sermon today, as you see on the screen, Is There Only One God? Now, in the last message, I was responding to Torah Resource Radio, Tim Hegg, Caleb Hegg, and Rob Van Hoff. And I mentioned towards the end of that sermon the concept of other gods, secondary beings next to Yahweh that can legitimately be called gods or mighty ones. Now, in light of my statements in the last sermon, what do we make of the very plain text of Paul here in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5? Very plain. Or what about the statement, better yet, made by Yahweh himself in Isaiah 43, verse 10, where he says, You are my witnesses, this is Yahweh's declaration, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. Now let me quickly mention here that although I don't normally, I'll be using the English word God in this sermon, so that everything will be easier to understand, and my thoughts will come out clearer to anyone who will later hear this lesson. So this is Yahweh speaking in Isaiah 43, verse 10. He's speaking to His people Israel, and He says to them, No God was formed before Me, and there will be none after Me. That sounds very, very plain, doesn't it? Yet I'm up here today telling you that there are other gods, other legitimate gods. Now, I believe... 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, and I believe Isaiah 43, verse 10. I'd be crazy to say, don't focus on those two texts. Let me let you focus on these other ones that I want you to see. I would never do that, intentionally at least. Although this may sound confusing and contradictory at first, I believe Yahweh is the only God and there is none before Him or after Him. But I also believe there are legitimate gods other than Yahweh. Now, I told you that that would sound contradictory. But before you tune me out, I want to ask you to travel along with me through the Scriptures, through all of the Scriptures, and not just those two texts. You know, false doctrine is often believed in and promoted by not taking into account the totality of Yahweh's Word. All of it. If you, any one of us, if you choose to only believe certain blocks of Scripture, 
or only read certain texts in Scripture or books in Scripture, if that's all you ever focus on, you're going to come out believing lopsided doctrine because you've not taken into account all of Yahweh's Word. Psalm 119, verse 160, New American Standard Bible says, The sum of thy word is truth. The sum means all of it, the totality of it. You have to take all of it into account, believe all of it, and then seek to comprehend the original harmony that existed between apparent contradictory texts. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm not going to look at any clips from the Rob and Caleb show in this lesson. What I want to do is focus on showing the concept from the Bible that it is okay to view other beings in Scripture as legitimate gods without confusing any of them with the one God, Yahweh. And right from the start, this may go in one ear and right out the other for many people. Maybe not here, but maybe who hear this lesson at a later time, or maybe here. But I just want to remind you of the words in Proverbs 18.13 that say this, The one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and disgrace for him. I've been guilty of breaking that verse before in my life. I try not to be guilty of that. I know that I will fail at that later on in the future again, even though I try hard not to. But I want you to not answer a matter before you hear this tonight. So let's look at Isaiah 43, verse 10. I've mentioned something before in teaching called the 2020 rule. What I mean by that is it's always good to read 20 verses before a verse and 20 verses after a verse to get the context of the verse that you seek to understand. You can rip the Bible apart, and you can quote one-liners if you choose. One preacher says, you're a one-verse Charlie when you do that. Some verses are good one-liners, though. Some of them are meant, especially in Proverbs. A lot of verses are one-liner verses. But every verse, generally speaking, is written in a context. Every phrase is spoken in a context. And it's important that you recognize that. An example that I use often to explain this to people in everyday life is this. If I go to the cookie jar in my home and I want a cookie, but they are gone, they're all gone, I would usually ask my wife this question. Honey, who ate all the cookies? But when I ask her that, she doesn't think about all the cookies in the world. She doesn't think about all the cookies in Georgia or all the cookies in Publix, even though I said who ate all the cookies. None of those are the context. You know what she thinks about? You know what all of you think about immediately? All the cookies in that jar or in my home. That's the context of my statement when I wake up in my cabin and I say who ate all the cookies. I'm talking about in this house. The man of the house wants a cookie who ate all the cookies. That's what I mean. That's a simple statement. We all understand it. But man alive, this simple contextual principle is usually chunked out the window when it comes to interpreting the Scriptures. It would be so good when we read the Scripture if we would ask ourselves simple questions like this. Who is the author? Who is the audience? What is the subject? What is the surrounding culture? 
How would the first readers of the text have understood this passage or this verse? And there's many, many more questions when you study the Bible you should ask yourself about a text before you plop down an interpretation that is incorrect based on your own culture, your own subject object, your own understanding, your own traditions of men. Well, in the case at hand, Isaiah 43.10, all we need to do is read verses 11 through 12 along with verse 10. And the meaning, I believe, comes out in full light. Look at it again. Verse 10, beginning. You are my witnesses. This is Yahweh's declaration and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. No God was formed before me and there will be none after me. Verse 11. I am Yahweh and there is no other Savior but me. Verse 12. I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. In verse 12, Yahweh says, I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. See, Yahweh in this passage is speaking in the context of foreign mighty ones. Foreign gods. Making a declaration that He is God alone, and He is Savior alone, and the foreign gods are no competition. This is often the theme in the book of Isaiah. Yahweh is telling His people Israel that stray and worship other gods, foreign gods, gods of other nations and peoples. He's saying those gods are nothing. He's the only God. There was none formed before Him. Neither shall there be after Him. That's the original context of the statement. We cannot pull one verse out of context and make it mean something that we want or what we think. Because when we read the Bible, we should not be after what we want or what we think or what we desire. We should be after what did it mean originally. What did it mean? I wish I had a cartoon up on the screen. I think I posted it on Facebook this week where the husband is laying down in the living room floor with his Bible out and his wife is trying to ask him a question. In the caption, he says, Don't bother me now, honey. He says, I'm looking for a verse that matches my preconceived notion. (laughs) Too often we do that when we study the Bible. We formulate what we want to believe before we go to the Bible. And then we look for verses and say, let me find a verse that matches what I believe already. I try not to do that. A long time ago, I made the decision that everything that I've been taught or that I believe has to be reexamined. Everything. And I've got to go with what the Bible teaches and not with what I want or think or some man, even if it's my beloved grandfather, has told me. My beloved grandfather is not there in my personal relationship with Yahweh. I love him. And he might be right on some things, but he could be wrong. And so I have to examine the Bible for myself to make sure that I'm following Yahweh how he wants me to follow him. So Yahweh says, I'm the only God, I'm the only Savior, the foreign gods are no competition. But what about the concept that I'm presenting here today about other legitimate gods? Well, let me show some of the evidence in Scripture that I'm speaking about. And we'll begin in Psalm 8, 4 through 5, HCSV. It says this, What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? 
You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, you might be wondering, why do you bring up that verse, Brother Matthew? Well, I want you to look at the same verse, same verse says, in the King James Version. It reads a little bit different. It says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. The HCSB says, little less than God. The KJV says, a little lower than the angels. Why the difference? Well, can anyone guess what the Hebrew behind these translations is? It's the word in Hebrew, Elohim. And if you just do something as simple as look this word, Elohim, up in Strong's Concordance, you'll see this definition given. It's Hebrew number 430, and it's the plural of 433. Strong's defines it as God's in the ordinary sense, but specifically used in the plural, thus especially with the article of the supreme God. Occasionally applied by way of deference to magistrates and sometimes as a superlative. Even James Strong, in his definition of Elohim, translated God in English, has more than one application of the term in his Hebrew lexicon. It is not a word that only applies to Yahweh. Now, in this case, in Psalm 8.5, we see the HCSB translates the word Elohim as God, little less than God. But the King James Version translates the word Elohim as angels. Which one is correct? Which one is accurate? Well, in this case, I believe the King James Version gets it right for a couple of reasons. First is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, dating back to the late B.C. era, before the time of the Messiah. It was the Bible of the Greek-speaking Israelites of the known world at that time. And it is also believed by scholars to be the Bible of many Greek-speaking Christians in the early A.D. centuries. Psalm 8, verse 5 in the Septuagint reads like this, quote, Thou madest him a little less than angels. The important point to note here is that the Greek Septuagint reads in Greek the word angelos, which is the Greek word transliterated into English as angels. The reason this is important is because it shows that Psalm 8.5 was understood to mean angels by Israelites at least a couple hundred years before the time of Yeshua. When the Israelite scholars who spoke Hebrew and Greek translated the Hebrew text of the Old Testament into Greek, they viewed Elohim of Psalm 8 verse 5 to be a reference to angelos or angels. Thus they translated the meaning of the verse and they used angelos. A lot of people I've talked to have a problem with the Septuagint because oftentimes it doesn't give a literal translation. I found, though, that the scholars that translated the Septuagint often were much more knowledgeable in the meaning of scriptures than we are. And there's many examples I could give, but many times the Septuagint will not literally translate the Hebrew text, but it will give forth the accurate meaning of the Hebrew text. Very important point. If you'd like to cover a couple of those, you can see me 
after the service or later on. We'll talk about that. Well, that brings me to my second point. The first, the Septuagint reads, little lower than angels, angelos. My second point is in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, A, it says, But one has somewhere testified, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. I'm reading from the HCSB here in Hebrews. Now these verses that we just read in Hebrews should sound familiar because it's a quotation of Psalm 8. And how does the author of Hebrews quote Psalm 8 in regards to verse 5? Well, the author writes, you made him lower than the angels, using the Greek word angelos just like the Septuagint. Now what's interesting here is the blunder in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. If you're reading the HCSB and you're a student of Scripture, you will see that the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8 verse 5 here, but the two do not match when you compare them in the HCSB. And that's because, and catch this, everybody needs to know this, the HCSB and the KJV are translations of the Bible. They did not float out of heaven. The Bible was not inspired in the English language. You cannot make any one translation the standard. The HCSB only came about 10 years ago. The King James Version has only been around for about 400 years approximately. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So you must do your research and examine the text that Yahweh initially gave. Psalm 8.5 in the HCSB reads little less than God with a capital G, meaning that they understand that to be a reference to Yahweh. But Hebrews 2.7 in the same Bible quotes Psalm 8.5 and it reads a little lower than the angels. That's a blunder. You'd scratch your head if you had your Bible and you'd think, well, what's the author doing here? Quoting the verse, he should have quoted it as God and not angels. What's the problem? Well, had the HCSB translators translated Elohim as angels like the KJV accurately did in Psalm 8 verse 5 the two Psalms in Hebrews would match now some people might say well Psalm 8 verse 5 doesn't say angels in Hebrew but the point is mute because what we see is that the word Elohim has more uses than just applying to Yahweh doesn't always mean Yahweh when we read Elohim it was a word that was understood as applying to angels even in the B.C. era according to the Septuagint. So the resulting understanding here is that angels in Scripture are considered Elohim. Or we might say they are considered to be gods. Look at Psalm 136, 1 through 3. It says, Give thanks to Yahweh for He is good. His love is eternal. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love is eternal. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. His love is eternal. Now, we read these verses and we come across the title, Lord of Lords. And I don't know how you have all read that in your studies, but I've always seen that as referring to the Supreme Lord over the other lords of the earth. And certainly, I don't think anybody would argue that other men of high rank in Scripture are referred to as my Lord. I was reading not long ago where David kept calling Saul, my Lord, my Lord, when Saul was king in Israel. 
why would we not read God of gods the same way? Is it just saying that Yahweh is God of gods in the sense of the God over all the foreign gods that don't really exist? Remember Isaiah 43? I don't think so. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying that Yahweh is the God over all the other gods, the legitimate gods, like the angels. They are divine beings, but Yahweh is God over them. They are lesser gods, but they are real mighty ones. Look at Psalm 138, verse 1. HCSB says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing your praise before the heavenly beings. Heavenly beings there is the Hebrew word Elohim. That's the HCSB. Look at the King James Version. It says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. What does this mean, before the gods will I sing praise unto thee? Well, once again, in the Septuagint, in Psalm 138.1, the text reads, I will sing psalms to thee before the angels. Using again the Greek word angelos. The ancient Septuagint translators again understand the Hebrew Elohim to refer to Angelos, angelic beings, Michael, Gabriel, Seraphim, Cherubim. The angels that Yahweh created, the spirit beings, can legitimately be referred to, according to the Bible, as gods. They are gods formed by Yahweh. Yet Yahweh says in Isaiah 43 verse 10, There was no god formed before me, nor shall there be after me. But remember, Isaiah 43 is a totally different context than the verses that we've been looking at in Psalms. And we're called to believe all the biblical texts and understand them all in the way they were meant to be read originally and in harmony. Now, let's move on and look at a few verses in Exodus 22, verses 8 through 9, HCSB. It says, If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house must present himself to the judges to determine whether or not he has taken his neighbor's property. In any case of a wrongdoing involving an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or anything else lost, and someone claims that's mine, the case between the two parties is to come before the judges, and the one the judges condemn must repay double to his neighbor. Now I want you to notice the three uses of the English word judges in this text. Behind each of these words, behind each of these uses, is the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember the Old Testament originally written in Hebrew. And in all three cases where I have judges circled, you will find the Hebrew word Elohim. All three times. So it says, If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house must present himself to Elohim to determine whether or not he has taken property. Or the case between the two parties is to come before Elohim. The King James Version translates each of these Elohim as judges as well. And I want you to notice how this verse 8 was translated in Exodus 22 in the 1395 John Wycliffe Bible. Old English, it says this, If the thief is hid, the Lord of the house shall be brought to goddess, or gods, that is, judges, and he shall swear that he held not forth the hand into the thing of his neighbor. You'll find that also in the 1534 Tyndale Bible and the 1535 Coverdale Bible. All of those Bibles read the gods in Exodus 22, 8 through 9. 
Now, there are many Bibles that translate all three of these occurrences as God, capital G-O-D, in English. Is God a wrong translation here? Well, yes and no. This is what I mean. It's not a mistranslation into English because the word Elohim can certainly mean God or Mighty One. But then again, it's not the best translation because the context of the law is a reference to the people of Israel going in front of the judges of Israel to determine a case between the two parties. And those judges can legitimately be referred to as gods because they judge in the stead of the one supreme God. That makes even more sense when we read a text like Psalm 82, verse 1, where it says, God has taken His place in the divine assembly. He judges among the gods. The first use of God is the supreme. Second use, the gods, is secondary. I want to look at this verse just a little bit. Verse 1 talks about God taking His place in the divine assembly. And the word divine is the Hebrew word El, the singular form of Elohim. Listen to what three commentators say about this verse. I'll quote these quickly. Albert Barnes says, quote, a reference to God as the supreme ruler, the ruler of those that rule, the God to whom all magistrates, however exalted in rank, are responsible, end of quote. John Wesley states this on the verse, quote, judges and magistrates are called gods because they have their commission from God and act as his deputies, end of quote. Matthew Poole says, quote, by gods or the mighty, he understands kings or other chief rulers who are so called because they have their power and commission from God and act as his deputies in his name and stead and must give an account to him of all their actions, end of quote. All three of these older commentators understand Psalm 82 verse 1 to be a reference to human judges in Israel at the time of the psalm. The judges of Israel act in God's stead in his place upon the earth to judge the matters amongst the Israelites. Matters like the one we went over in Exodus 22 about the thievery. The judges are called Elohim or gods because of their high-ranking status. However, Yahweh is referred to as God or Mighty One over the judges. Thus, in Psalm 82 verse 2, he says to these judges who were corrupt, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? See, Yahweh is reprimanding these judges in Psalm 82 because they are not performing their duty like they are supposed to. They're veering away from their God status. Look at 2 Chronicles 19, 4-7. This is a beautiful verse that I just found this week in studying. It says this, Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and once again he went out among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to Yahweh, the God of their ancestors. He appointed judges in all the fortified cities of the land of Judah. City by city, verse 6, very key. Listen to what he says. Then he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for Yahweh, who is with you in the matter of judgment. And now may the terror of Yahweh be on you. Watch what you do, for there is no injustice or partiality or taking bribes with Yahweh our God. See, the judges in Israel, they were judging on Yahweh's behalf. They were telling the Israelites that brought the cases to them, 
the word of Yahweh, what Yahweh would say. Yahweh was speaking through the judges of Israel. And the judges were to be appointed based upon their actual righteousness. They didn't take bribes. They were men of great repute. They were well considered to be righteous by the law in the community of Israel. These are the men that they would come to and they would judge them. The Israelites, that is. They represented Yahweh to the people and therefore they were called Elohim in Exodus 22, 8-9, or gods. They were viceroys to Yahweh. This is seen later down in Psalm 82, 6-7. But it is also seen that if they violate the standard of Yahweh, they will die just like men who do not have the lofty position. Look at it. Psalm 82, 6 through 7. Yahweh says, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like men and fall like any other ruler. I want you to notice how Yahweh calls them gods here. And then he gives a parallel term as sons of the Most High. Oftentimes when you read the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that there's something called parallelism. And it's used for the sake of emphasis. It's saying the same thing twice in two different ways. That's what's happening here in Psalm 82.6. I said you are gods, all of you are sons of the Most High. Those are parallel terms. And I think that this term sons of the Most High is equated or paralleled with gods because to be a son of, catch this now, to be a son of generally carried with it the meaning of to be like your father. And in this sense, Yahweh was their father, the judges of Israel. So as his children, representing Yahweh's law on the earth to the people of Israel, they're called gods or sons of the Most High. I believe that's the sense of the parallelism in Psalm 82.6. I want you to notice, though, in verse 7 it says, but you'll die like men, like any other ruler. So these gods would be punished for their unjust judging. They were acting as unjust gods. But what about the judges that ruled correctly in Israel? Everybody, I find, when I study on this verse from modern-day commentators, wants to point out the unjust judgments in Psalm 82. I've got no problem with that. Yahweh still says, I said, you're gods. But what about the judges that judged correctly, that were not unjust? They wouldn't be unjust judges or unjust gods. They would be just gods or righteous gods. What we're seeing here is that the Scriptures do teach the concept of legitimate gods other than Yahweh. Gods that Yahweh creates or gods that Yahweh authorizes to do His work as His agents. One last example before we close. Exodus 4, 13 through 16. Moses said, Please, Lord, send someone else. Then Yahweh's anger burned against Moses and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Here when Moses complains about not being a good speaker, Yahweh gives Moses his brother Aaron as a mouthpiece. Moses and Aaron are like God and a prophet. Moses is God. Aaron's the prophet. 
Moses functions as a god, and Aaron functions as a prophet for Moses, his god. In other words, Aaron is Moses' mouth, and Moses is Aaron's god. That's what this verse means. Now, Exodus 7, verse 1, it says, Yahweh answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. The King James Version, translating more literally, says, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh. The Hebrew word here is simply Elohim. I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh. Here again, just like in Exodus 4.16, Moses functions as God and is thus called God. And Aaron functions as the prophet of the God, Moses. Now, in all of this that we've seen tonight, we've seen that there is not just one bare use of the word God in Scripture. There are false gods, yes. But I believe there are also gods other than Yahweh, legitimate gods that serve Yahweh, like his good angels, his good judges, and Moses. And I want to close with a quote that I made from Daniel Boyarin's book last week. Remember, it's the book that was cited on the Robin Caleb show that was supposed to be in their favor, that they presented and brought up, not in my favor. And Daniel Boyarin says this in his book, Quote, the Messiah Christ existed as an Israelite idea long before the baby Jesus was born in Nazareth. That is, the idea of a second God as viceroy to God the Father is one of the oldest of theological ideas in Israel. Daniel 7 brings into the present a fragment of what is perhaps the most ancient of religious visions of Israel that we can find. End of quote. Now, in light of what we've covered tonight, I think that that's an excellent statement from Boyarin. Boyarin is certainly not the source of truth, nor would I go to him for the source of truth. But Boyarin's book doesn't go along with the fact of Yeshua being Yahweh or the Trinitarian or the oneness concept that's predominantly taught in Christianity today. Boyarin's statement is accurate based upon Daniel 7, what we read last week, what we covered last week about the Son of Man that receives authority, a high-ranking individual, different from the Ancient of Days. Yahweh is the Ancient of Days. Yeshua is not. He's the Son of Man that receives authority from the Ancient of Days. And now we've seen that this concept is also based upon many verses in the Bible that speak of legitimate gods other than Yahweh. So is there only one God? That's the title to my sermon. Well, yes, if we're talking about in opposition to foreign gods, or in the ultimate sense of the word, Yahweh is the monarch. He alone holds his position. There's only one of him. 1 Timothy 2.5 is right. Isaiah 43 and 10 is right. But are there legitimate good gods other than Yahweh? Well, I believe if you want to accept the totality of Yahweh's word, the answer has to be yes, there are. But in a secondary sense and usage under Yahweh's authority acting in his stead under his control. Now, I hope what this lesson does is acts as a catapult into next week's lesson as we look at some more clips from the Rob and Caleb show about the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, specifically in John chapter 1. In the meantime, study what I've shown you tonight. Don't receive it. Don't reject it. You've listened to it, examine it. 
like a Berean. Go home and examine it and see if it be so. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Yahweh Father, thank you so much for this opportunity again today. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you'd help all of us believe your word, every bit of it. I pray that you'd help us rightly divide it. I pray that you'd help us, Father, and keep us from a bad interpretation or a bad understanding. Including myself, Yahweh. Father Yahweh, I love you and I only want the truth. I don't want anything false. So I pray that you would lead me and guide me, Father Yahweh, every day as well as every person in here. Father, above all, I pray for our spiritual well-being. I pray that our needs are supplied, and I believe that they are here tonight. So, Father, may we spend more time reading your word and studying your word and praying, seeking wisdom and understanding from it. Father Yahweh, thank you for who you are and who you are alone. And we serve and we worship and we magnify you alone as the monarch over the universe. Father, we're also thankful for your angels, your prophets, and your son. And it's through your son I pray. Amen.